Our heart sponsor for today is the 501c3 nonprofit National Treasures Artists in Residence. We are supporting them by offering an audience-requested masterclass on business plan writing. Over 30 days, you will receive daily emails with micro-tasks broken down over the month that will give you a complete plan. This will help you assemble your ideas, communicate your concept to others, and raise capital. Participants will be eligible for prizes that will help you polish your plan to optimize success. Visit AchievePodcast.com forward slash business plans with an S to register. Our mind sponsor for today is Modern Career. The Modern Career podcast, coaching, and workshops enable you to navigate your career in an ever-changing world and help you live your full potential. Mary Humiston, a former Chief Human Resource Officer of Rolls-Royce, shares insider tips, including insights from leaders and executives from all over the world. Leverage their expertise. They can help you build resilience, overcome obstacles, and feel more fulfilled every day. Visit modern-career.com in order to schedule a session with one of their experienced coaches. And if you use the code ACHIEVE20, you'll get 20% off. On this episode, we have Kai Mildenberger. Kai was born and raised in northwest Germany near the border with the Netherlands. He developed a passion for technology while young and migrated to the U.S. to study for his bachelor's degree. He launched a software and ERP implementation business shortly after graduating, which he ultimately sold to Computer Associates. After leaving them, over the next several years, Kai was involved in a series of startups, leading various technology teams at the most senior level. Most recently, he has become co-founder of SciML, applying a psychometric analytical framework to big data sets and utilizing machine learning and AI to enhance the human experience. Kai, thank you so much for being on our show. Stephen, thank, thank you very much for inviting me. No, this is a great pleasure. Um, we, of course, have uh, known each other for quite some time, being former neighbors in Los Angeles, where I continue to reside. Um, and uh, you are in San Francisco now. So um, uh, I do miss uh, having you as a neighbor. Um, but uh, hopefully once we get through this quarantine and this pandemic, we will have a chance to uh, meet up in person again. Uh, after Maybe for another scotch night. Yes, that was right. That would uh, over brilliantly well. Yeah, our uh, mutual love and admiration of single malt whiskey. Um, there have been a few adventures since then that have involved Scotland. So there's going to be a bit to catch up on. <laughs> Excellent. After for you as well. Yeah. Well, uh, the other uh, reason I've been looking forward to this is um, uh, just your varied experiences that you've had and how you bring together a lot of different uh, seemingly disparate disciplines. And um, you said it best on your LinkedIn, where you talk about how you bring science, engineering, and art to business through technology. And I think um, it is a, a wonderful disciplines to, to bring together. So I um, look forward to sharing with the audience um, these various things that you've been working on. But I always like to start from the very beginning and go, go way back to, uh, to your upbringing and um, you know, being born in Germany. And if memory serves, it was in uh, Nordrhein-Westfalen? That's correct, right, yeah. in a tiny, well, at least um, my, my formative um, sort of childhood years were right on the Dutch border in uh, north, northwest Germany. Um, nice. On nothing on the German side, but the Dutch side, uh, the next town was Enschede, and you know, the, it had the um, Technical University Twente, which is now one of the oh, yes. top engineering schools in Europe. Um, right. But having Enschede um, at close call, sort of kept like all of our like all of the other kids I grew up with we, you know we stayed sane because we had that because other than that it's just cornfields <laughs> not much else to do so you were technically oriented already from from young were you into programming or coding or gaming what were your interests um yeah since I think now I'm dating myself terribly. Um, it was more electronics, you know. When okay. when as a as a kid, I remember my first real um, experience in with technology was uh, my dad gave me a, um, and he's a mechanical engineer, so um, and very much um, you know he, for fun he read um, 
up on quantum physics and <laughs> so definitely um it's a family tradition uh, um, leisure um, reading exactly <laughs> um, the scientific side and the engineering side but he gave me a, a fisher technique electronics set and oh, yeah. i was super fascinated because there were um components that were called flip-flops and with those you could do actually you know control motors and you can um, you know build machines that actually reacted to things uh, i was fascinated so um, um might have been a little early but i was i think it was eight or nine when when this this exploration started so no coding because computers hadn't really quite made it yet <laughs> gotcha okay uh, no that's superb uh, do you have siblings kai Yes, uh, sister, um, okay. five years older. Okay, all right. Um, but uh, I imagine, um, was she also interested in this uh, Fisher Technique uh, oh, no. set that you got? Okay, <laughs> <laughs> so it was no. mostly your, your peers. Yes, yeah, um, I was slightly lonely um, because we, at that time, we lived in a um, uh, in a thousand-soul village, um, mm -hmm. and that's probably I they probably counted cattle too, in order to get to that number. <laughs> it was very, very small. And no, there oh. weren't really, um, there wasn't anybody I could play with. I mean, there were a lot of farmers. So um, I got into, you know, how a tractor works quite well. <laughs> but but anything electronic was, was a little bit outside of the range. My sister, of course, was embedded in that world much more because she loved horses. She had a horse, yeah. she was riding. So, um, but no. Um, she was always more on the, um, you know, from the beginning, um, uh, geared towards the arts. Um, okay. Then, then at least her interest in the technical side, which is, you know, was it? I mean, the blend that has been sort of the line through my life has been really, you know, art has been super important. Um, the engineering aspect has been super important, and um, sort of what eventually tied it all together i didn't know it seemed to be like a a separate world at that time um at least early childhood um but science is really the sort of binding glue which yeah uh, the common thread which i was actually very surprised because um it's been only in the last five five or so years that i thought that i really understood that um science is the binding glue not engineering i thought engineering yeah. would integrate all of that but um right right Early, uh, early attempts uh, clearly showed that the scientific method was much, much better than the engineering method, okay, <laughs> even for engineering. <laughs> right, right. Well, that's excellent. Well, I'm sure we're going to get into the various um, sort of examples that uh, brought that uh, thinking home for you. Um, I was just very curious, you opted to go to Connecticut in the US for your undergrad degree. Um, was there a desire to come to the States and how did that develop? Um, it was definitely always um, the U because, you know, the US had Silicon Valley. Um, at that time, I was, you know, I had um, um, first was a was a was an Apple II clone, then I got like an actual Apple II computer. So you know my heroes were um, in Cupertino, <laughs> right? <laughs> from, of course. From an from an early age. Um, right. So I had wanted to go. Um, I uh, had a girlfriend at the time who uh, who was a year ahead of me, and she had already gone to the U.S. Um, okay. And she was in Fairfield. So that's I, okay. how I ended up in Connecticut because. Okay. Um, I originally wanted, you know, the two schools that I was really interested in was Stanford and Berkeley, right. um, but she was in Connecticut, and I thought, you know, from a, from a like non-informed, and this was prior to Google, <laughs> um, German perspective, um, it didn't seem to matter. I mean, right. it's like as long as you're there, like it's all because in 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 Germany the schools are, you know. The curriculums are pretty, pretty robust and pretty broad, and the schools are huge, yes. um, a lot of them. Um, so it really didn't matter. Um, and my, um, at that time, my my real goal was to do computer animation, uh, 3D animation. Oh, okay. so that was right. sort of the the driving factor. It wasn't computer science. It was really yeah. um, computer animation. And I, of course, didn't research whether that little <laughs> school and little Jesuit college in Fairfield. Um, 
had that discipline <laughs> available. Um, I also didn't know at the time that that discipline wasn't really actually fully in existence yet. Right, <laughs> very, right. very okay. few places. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, that it kind of explains because, uh, and we'll get into this, you did go to Parsons uh, eventually for a master's in 3D modeling and animation. So, um, okay. Well, thank you for your very uh, candid description of how you ended up at uh, at Fairfield. And um, uh, But we, we, you finished your degree out there and then you came back to Germany, is it, to launch IDEA? Yes. Um, originally, so right, um, and so... It was, I was working with, uh, with the head of the um, information systems department. And, you know, that was the area that really, really excited me in, in Fairfield. Um, uh, Dr. DeMichael was a, just, a, just a brilliant um, communicator of technology and enterprise systems, you know, at that time, uh, keep in mind this started, you know, late 80s. <laughs> so things were a little <laughs> different then. Um, sure. Um, and he had a consulting practice, so um, I was involved with uh, outside project. I think from freshman year, uh, I had a lot of uh, independent study <laughs> projects filling my <laughs> curriculum, nice. um, um, which was, in fact, commercial work. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and um, sort of the 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 work and the the exposure evolved, um, uh, really looking into how systems work and how you can how you can not only just um, embed um, implement the right systems and uh, with business processes but also figuring out what the sort of uh, metaphors are and sure. he was uh, uh, leading uh, very much involved in an organization with the worst acronym ever called WACRA <laughs> which is the <laughs> World Association for Case Study and Method something I might not even be getting wow. it, right? But <laughs> it was a group of um, group of professors from Harvard, from you know, all of these uh, universities that are really looking at case method, which became you know, the de facto way of teaching MBAs, for example. Sure. Um, and of course, it was at the time when, my God, there could be a chance to make video be fed from the computer. That was not, not mm -hmm. actually possible at the right. time. This was prior to QuickTime, which sort of launched that, um, right. um, that entire process. And um, in, my, in my senior year, um, I got a, a friend of mine was an Apple developer in, in Berlin, and he got his hand on an early alpha version of QuickTime. And in communications, we thought, man, this should be possible to have video playing from a hard drive. <laughs> And that was sort of the, well, case studies are a lot of material. You have video, yeah. you have audio, you have written material, you have images. Um, and right now you go to the, well, right now in that, at that time, um, late 80s, early 90s, you had to go to the library and you figure this all out. And in communications with, uh, with Dr. DeMichael and his colleagues, how do you get to understand the journey the student takes, because yeah. that is as informative as mm. the final report. Um, what decisions are made at what point? And there was no way to do it because it was happening offline. So the idea was if you could bring this all together in one place, and, and we called this, and we built the product later called the case machine, <laughs> very oh, imaginative. okay, gotcha. Um, add all of, the, uh, all of the material for the case study, onto the computer yeah. and then yeah. track sort of how you go. You have annotation features, you can track. I mean, today it seems like a, a cool idea. It was way too early, which is yeah, another much theme of throughout time. my life. <laughs> <laughs> but, so we built this and this was my senior thesis and we launched this wow. at the Wacker um, um, uh, World Convention in Berlin in uh, spring. Uh, no, uh, late spring, early summer, um, uh, 91. Okay. And the, the uh, reaction was great. We launched our first customer that night, uh, that, uh, you know, during that day, wow. um, which was IMD in Switzerland. And I went back after, after that summer. So I had gone to, to Berlin to work with my friend. We, we would just sit on the, on the 
on the floor um, coding because um, when I joined him, his girlfriend had just moved out and taken all of the furniture. <laughs> so we were sitting on the on the floor in wow. Berlin coding up this, uh, this tool um, for that presentation. And um, we decided to launch it. But at that point, I th still thought, you know, I'd fly back to the US and uh, because I had a job lined up for, with a manufacturing company mm, okay. um, in the mid Midwest to, um, uh, to work in the IT department. So I flew back, but within two weeks, it was clear um, you can't launch a company like this in Missouri. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, just don't have the infrastructure around you, and it just didn't make any sense. So that's why we decided to launch it in Germany. Okay, fantastic. So that's when I came back. Yeah, excellent. And um, you ran and grew that for five years and um, caught the attention of computer associates. Right. And you ended up uh, selling to them. So share with us about that decision. Um, uh, did you feel like uh, you, you needed significant resources in order to grow to a next plateau? Or did you want to be involved yourself in another arena? Um, just what was going on at the time? Yeah, it was a really interesting time because we were we were competing where we had no right to compete with the small mm -hmm. companies. So we were at that time, we were um, uh, just over 35 people across five companies with the in the idea group and we were implementing manufacturing systems and we right. saw lots of white space lots of areas i mean mrp was just sort of coming to the end and erp was launching so it's a very interesting time um but there were a lot of add-ons that were really critical for specifically for small to medium um uh, manufacturing businesses, which were not being um, very well served by the, you know, by SAP, which was the stalwart then, sure. and uh, right. Bon, which was sort of, this was a two company game, it was SAP on one side and, and Bon on the other side. Um, and these small companies just weren't particularly well served. Um, and there were so many specific issues um, that small manufacturing companies faced that um, if you didn't take very, very careful focus on those, you would basically eradicate their being, um, their yeah. reason to be in the market in the first place. Right. Um, right. Some of these companies in, uh, would exist for very, very, and would compete and would be having worldwide acclaim for things that in a normal sort of fully um, optimized way, you would engineer away because mm. those critical success factors that they had that were their reason for being um, didn't fit in the in the you know um, McKinsey book of uh, right. <laughs> how That's things true. should look. So right. we were um, we were helping these businesses, and through that um, we were implementing um, uh, Man Man X, which was uh, originally Ask. Ask was the uh, was the market leader in MRP, Silicon Valley company. Uh, right. That was acquired by. Um, well, they they acquired Ingress, and then the whole caboodle got acquired by Computer Associates, right. and Computer Associates had zero experience in business applications. They were okay. fantastic in system management, sure, uh, right. which sort of came the impetus. But they had bought this company, and probably because of Ingress, but they got all of these other products, and they really didn't know how to how to deal with them particularly well. Um, so we became sort of a crutch for them. We, we the small group of, uh, <laughs> of of people based out of Germany um, were in key roles on uh, you know, working with them. And at the, the at the time when when this when this offer came along from Computer Associates, we were pitching to do their worldwide localizations um, of the ManManX software. Yep. So um, the discussion got got more and more. Um, interesting but we never reached our, our my particular specific partners in, of communications at, at ca weren't at the right at the highest level but i remember sitting in Torquay at the uh, english riviera with one of <laughs> <one of> my that <laughs> my general manager for the for the uk business uh, right. we were discussing um, one large implementation um, and i get a call from 
um, Charles Wong, who was the founder and CEO of Computer Associates at the time, says, well, we really should talk. Um, can you be here tomorrow? And it's like, by here, you mean New York? You mean in, we're on Long Island? So yeah, yes, yes. Can you be here tomorrow? It's like, I don't think that's logistically possible. I, you know, it's, it's, it's late at night. I'm sitting over dinner in Torquay, <laughs> England. So sure, you can do it. They have this fasting. Take that. Oh, the Concord. He suggested you jump on that. Amazing. Yes, well, it's still a few hour drive to Heathrow. Uh, and it's like, really? Will you pay for it? Sure. Like, make make sure you're here tomorrow morning. It's like, okay. <laughs> I um, we we had a stick shift uh, rental car, so my my of course we neither one of us um, was there uh, with uh, with uh, our. Um, manager in the in the uh of the, our dutch company as well so we, we got into that rental car um and i shifted while he drove <laughs> <laughs> to the airport um you know went up to the to the concord counter and said like i need a ticket <laughs> and there was one available i got on the flight Amazing. and that morning i was actually so the next morning i was actually in Islandia sitting in front of Charles Wong and he said, you know, we have all of these business applications, uh, sorry, these system applications. We are awesome. We're the best. There's nobody better than us, but we've acquired all of these um, management, business management applications. And honestly, we really don't know how to do, deal with them. Mm -hmm. You, however, seem to know what you're doing. <laughs> Why would you not um, come work for us? and take all of these business applications, we'll build this into a, into a strong independent business, spin it out and take it public under your leadership. How about it? Wow, brilliant. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I was very shocked because, you know, right. 29, I had like no idea of <laughs> big business, but we were always competing with the big guys. And I thought, my God, this would really be a way to compete with the big guys. And he said, oh yeah, of course, I'll buy your company. Okay. All right. <laughs> so, <laughs> little so that's how the negotiations started. Um, Amazing. And, and they worked out. Um, and that's, mm. yeah, that's how um, I came to build the, um, which was the uh, uh, the MK group, which right. uh, another like note to self, don't ever name something <laughs> with your initials that, <laughs> you don't have ownership for you, you might control it yeah. yeah see it yeah, for a long yeah. time <laughs> so we built the mk group um which unified all of the uh, all of the um man, uh, sort of manufacturing products and business applications under com uh, in computer associates right, um, right. under that roof well um but that experience only lasted about six months for you yes because um then um Sanjay Kumar, who uh, was the COO at the time and the president um, of the company at the time, waited until Charles went on jury duty to reorganize the company. Oh my and goodness. Our, our business unit was very much um, uh, revered because mm -hmm. it exploded in terms of the, um, the pipeline. The pipeline was completely dry when I, when I, when I took it over. And it was the fastest growing in terms of uh, revenue and potential revenue generation um, of all of the various um, business units that were that was started. So um, I, unbeknownst to me, I had a huge target on my back, which well, <laughs> I didn't no. realize. And um, he used that opportunity when Charles, who was sort of, you know, having a hand over us. Um, yeah, I was a champion of the group. To reorganize everything, and uh, wow. he wanted to push me into a um, uh, into a marketing role mm. um, from you know running this and running the division group, and that that would so it took it took a very long time to untangle yeah. <laughs> afterwards, yeah. um, and you learn a lot in terms of um, how to deal with the legal profession. But uh, <laughs> we prevailed after a very very long time. And in hindsight, oh my God, we got out at the right time because you know Sanjay um, later got, I think, twelve years um, uh, in, 
in a state prison, I think. <laughs> and um, a lot of the leadership of the um, of the organization uh, for things that you know didn't even go back to to the time that I was there. But um, right. there were apparently bad things going on. At yeah, the yeah, for sure. Well, it's uh, amazing. Sometimes you don't know why things are happening, but uh, there's a, a bigger logic or um, a larger solution that doesn't reveal itself until some time later. So, um, yeah, certainly now you can look back and count your blessings. Um, but I, I have to say it was the most um, impactful time for my personal development hmm. because, you know, I was... Um, uh, 29 and 30 um, when all of this all of this happened and my entire self-definition was always my work because yeah. I started a company right out of right out of school and all I knew is you know how to how to look at myself as a leader of a company yeah um, and all of a sudden I was sitting in New York um, going back to school but having to look at like who am I well wow. What is, how do, if, if I always thought like I can, I'm completely defined by my business success, by, you know, who do I even exist? And it was wow. quite a journey wow. to figure out. Um, and, and this is a journey that I, that I hope everybody has a chance, maybe in less painful environments <laughs> to, uh, <laughs> to do, but really <laughs> learn that you are, you're much, much more than your mm. current job. Um, yeah, yeah, you're not and, defined by your business and the work you do. Right, your business should be defined by you, not the other right, way around. Right. But that was that was a long learning experience. No, I can imagine. Um, and of course, you tied that in with your masters at uh, at Parsons. Well, um, it's just it's not. Or, so I didn't actually do a, get a degree. I it took classes until um, oh, okay. I was recruited away from the <laughs> from New York. Um, I wish I. Uh, I had done more um, at the time. My goal was to catch up on everything, sure. and to build an animation studio in New York. That wow. was that was because I thought, you know, okay, um, I'm a little bit financially comfortable after, yeah, <laughs> after the right. acquisition, and um, let me see what I can build. You know, bring what I had originally come to the U.S. for, bring it all together, and uh, make that happen. Um, but it wasn't able to. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, it, for various reasons. Okay. Uh, it sounds like you, somebody scooped you up. They said they needed you. And uh, this was, uh, was this Glovia? Is that pronounced? Glovia, yes. Actually, that was, um, that story started still at Computer Associates because um, oh, okay. one of the last things that I did at CA was um, at the um, CA World, the global conference in New Orleans. Um, that was my God. It must have been August, September um, of ninety ninety six. Okay. We were, you know, I had just taken over this entire group, um, and I was being chaperoned around the around the conference. You know, my day scheduled. You know, so twenty to twenty two meetings every day. My my, uh, um, my good friend um, Paul Moss, who was our um, uh, company manager for the idea group in the UK was sort of my minder. He like, sort of like, now it's enough. Now you go with me <laughs> to the next room, um, and then all of a sudden we we get um, uh, the the president of the user group walks towards us and say, "You better be in this room at that time. Okay. Um, and you better prepare yourself. It's a lynching meeting." Mm wait, what? <laughs> like, um, so we, we canceled everything else that was on our yeah. schedules. And I brought my, my, my team into that meeting. And um, yeah, they basically um, had all of the user group um, sitting there and saying, you know, we, we wholesale um, decided that we are moving to another platform. We're going to abandon you because it's been a disaster uh, working wow. with you. Was, working with CA in this capacity was terrible. Wow. Um, and, um, you know, in another hotel, there's a guy waiting to sign us all up. Um, 
And the next, I think it was probably two, two and a half hours, we worked with the team, with my, my leadership team, um, to the point that at the end, all of the users got up, applauded us when we left. Um, the uh, user group president went to that hotel room where this other gentleman was sitting, waiting for these contracts to be signed, saying, um, I'm sorry, we're not going. Um, our apologies, but there's a new guy. We really like him, and it looks like they have things in hand. Wow. Phenomenal. So that guy Good job sitting in the other you. room was um, Bill Engel, who was uh, the president of Glovia. Oh. <laughs> so um, he eventually, um, through, um, I, I think it was Corn Ferry, uh, one of the headhunting firms, contacted me, invited me, and told me that story because I didn't know that side of the story. Right. <laughs> and say, uh, said, look, we have, um, we have a big problem with uh, engineering. We, we clearly need a turnaround. Um, they had just gone from MRP to ERP, so added 40% of code to the base, um, right. and it didn't work. Um, so they, they had real struggle. They did it with consultants. Um, and he also intimated, you know, I'm looking to retire. Oh, um, okay. Would you be interested? Um, so that's how I got to LA. <laughs> okay, fantastic. Um, but you were there about two years. So either uh, he didn't retire or you opted. Oh, the to... world changed. <laughs> <laughs> the world changed a lot. Um, yeah. So Glovia was a joint venture between McDonald Information Systems, MDIS, um, which floated in the UK and had a dubious distinction as a, one of a particularly terrible float. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> Stock okay. market. Um, yeah, yeah. And Fujitsu. So um, Glovia was a joint uh, venture. Um, um, the product itself um, the, uh, was the old, uh, was originally the chess product from, from Xerox. So um, um, there were more cross connections that, you know, your podcast will be too long if we go there. <laughs> <laughs> but um, when uh, they, they, so they had built this product, um, they, they um, ran, in, ran into some issues. Um, I, I joined them, we did, a, we did an engineering turnaround, um, met a couple of super, super brilliant engineers there, um, were able to add um, some other technologists and um, were able to turn the product around, nice. um, launch um, about 18, 18 to 20 months later with a, com with a completely new re reworked version of the first ERP system that was completely web enabled. Uh, had a Java client um, way ahead of everybody else. Um, was really, really exciting. But um, at that time, um, the UK uh, uh, decided that they wanted to change this entire organization and they plopped in a new um, head of the business. So it wasn't left to, um, to the succession planning that was that was there <laughs> right. that was in place from before and it was a it was wow. a financially a, a challenging time so um they did a, a extremely um what i found um badly orchestrated uh, reduction in force and it seemed like that's not the environment we yeah. can we can do on some of the wrong people will let go it was it was just really um really sad. So that, um, that opened my mind up to, um, um, to be open for, for other calls. And um, that was when I joined People Mover, which right. was the first internet startup. <laughs> I okay. mean, pure internet startup was it was it that you were was a dot com. Um, we uh, was contacted by headhunters and met mm. the met the leader, um, really, really liked him and loved what they were trying to do. So that's how I joined uh, People Mover. Nice. Uh, and then did you orchestrate the merger with Opus 360? Yeah, so this was, um, some of that was already in progress when I didn't know. <laughs> it was uh, ostensibly uh, another, another um, to, to exactly, <laughs> uh, technology turnaround. I was able to take um, uh, some of the brilliant 
people that um, um, and the team that we had assembled at, at Glovia uh, along with me. So we were able to hit the ground running, um, get the technology in shape. Um, but communications had already started with a New York-based company called Opus 360, which had filed an S1 to go public. You know, these are the heady days of the bubble. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. Had filed mm -hmm. their, uh, their S1, um, but they were told by their investors because they didn't have a product and they didn't have customers that that was probably not looking so very good and that they should probably at least get a pro uh, product and it would be good if they had um, at least one marquee customer. So people move at the time had CSC Corporation, the guys mm. that were building nuclear submarines right. <laughs> <laughs> um, as a customer for this new product. And we were the target and say, okay, well, we, we acquire you. So we have what we need for investors to go public. So that's how that's how that um, then my job became um, being sort of um, bi coastal. Monday, Tuesday was Manhattan Beach, which is where, where people move, uh, people move was, and Wednesday, Thursday, Friday uh, was Manhattan, where Opus wow. 60 had its engineering team, and I tried to put the two of them together, which uh, was unique. They were on, you know, Microsoft stack. We were on Java stack. Um, it was uh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, interesting integration was was not easy um did, was there a name change then to access 360 no so this is i i know if you look at my linkedin it looks pathetically weird no this was opus 360 and we went public um um dubiously on the last day before the market went to heck in 2000 oh, wow that was a brief but very exciting <laughs> moment um oh, but um, no, I was recruited um, because by that time I had a little bit of an LA reputation for technology turnaround. Turn there was another company, unfortunately called 360 something too, okay, Access 360, okay. right. um, yeah. which um, um, which was in Irvine, and um, I started dialogue with them and um, joined them to as CTO and general manager for taking this enterprise product and making it a public infrastructure. Gotcha. Okay. Because, um, go ahead. No, no, please. Um, the idea was so to so the, um, the access 360 product was um, it's a security backbone. So oh, yeah. if you have, um, you know, large companies, um, and I think our biggest customer at the time was BPM ago with 160,000 people. Um, how do you make sure that people, that only people that are there uh, should be allowed in all of their various systems? And right. you know, people were still operating mainframes, having all of these different systems. This was long before the, you know, the SSO, the single sign-on. Um, but you know, S the single sign-on is only sort of the door lock, but you still sure. need to make sure that you have authority uh, authorization for all of the things behind the door right, and you right. know for example with sap that's 280 some parameters that you have to set for every user how do you police that in a big business i mean it's a massive business opportunity yeah. and, and a big big headache um so that's what access 360 was all about is connecting to the hr system on one end and having connectors and intelligent agents to talk to all of these other systems in your infrastructure to ensure that you have actually that only people that ought to have authorization and access to certain systems have authorization and access to certain certain uh, systems and of course we were thinking you know the internet was taking off even though you know we had the first nuclear winter <laughs> <Yeah>. after the <laughs> dot, com, dot com bubble burst but it was clear to see that eventually there's a world where we need to have this provisioning system and this, yeah. this uh, way of having trusted relationship between organizations so that the headache of setting up accounts and letting people in from outside into your systems and other uh, in other ways um, that we have that figured out so so this publishing public provisioning infrastructure we called it ppi you know because pki was the public uh, key infrastructure uh, <laughs> in security man management. Right, right. We thought, oh, it's going to be PPI. It'll <laughs> it'll totally take off. 
because this shouldn't be an enterprise system. This should live in between enterprises. Ah, uh, yeah, um, that makes sense. But this was before blockchain, before there was a way to actually do um, uh, trust with uh, without having a, um, a trusted third party. So right. our work was we immediately um, started talking to VeriSign, which was the trusted organization mm -hmm. at the time they were running not just the um the pki infrastructure the root certificates for all certificates um but they were also um you know at that time running the dns system right um, so they were very very trusted we thought they will eventually buy us and just build this um ppi um we were of course wrong <laughs> it was it was <laughs> It was IBM. We then thought like it might be Oracle, uh, but it was IBM that eventually um, said, oh no, we need this, but not for the public provisioning infrastructure side, but we need something for the enterprise backend. And it uh, became okay. Tivoli Identity Manager. So the Access gotcha. 360 system became the Tivoli Identity Manager. I see. Wow. Um, it's amazing the number of uh, M&A situations that uh, you've been involved with. <laughs> They're all very interesting learning experiences. Yeah. Speaking <laughs> of case studies, right? Uh, <laughs> one day, I have a friend that uh, that is quite good in writing. Um, um, one day, I thought like maybe that should make it into a book because yeah. other people could possibly learn along, like some of the things that <laughs> exactly <laughs> that yeah. painfully I learned as well. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You had to live through it all. Um, well, so uh, at that point, um, enterprise uh, software and ERP systems were, um, you, you kind of made a shift away from it. And um, uh, you launched this uh, marketplace, eConnections. Yes, yes. So it, um, it so eConnections was a, um, you know, after, um, after Access 360, it was clear that, you know, this was going to go the, um, an acquisition route. Um, I met uh, Rob Broden um, in Pasadena, who was, who had just, he was the founder of um, eConnections. He was the CEO of uh, Marshall Industries, you know, the Marshall from Marshall School of Business, sure. uh, Gordon Marshall. Um, he had um, um, built Marshall Industries and sold it to Avnet for, you know, one point something billion dollars. I mean, it was a it was a really big deal. It was you know, one of the biggest, um, and I think it's still one of the um, Avnet is still one of the two um, biggest electronics um, distributors. So this is distribution, not like the Ingram Micros, the on the consumer side of the supply chain, but on the um, on the producer side of the supply chain. So the companies like Apple are the big manufacturers of, you know. They don't actually build their own product, but you know, companies like Foxconn, they buy from Avnet and DigiKey and um, and Arrow. Um, those are the and um, Rob Roden's vision to to really um, build a solution to make this entire supply chain pro uh, process much more um, much smoother. Um, sort of like a, like a real-time visibility GPS system in the su mm. supply chain, which is, you know, immediately like resonated with me because that's where we wanted to take Glovia. And some of those ideas we went all the way back to idea what we saw in these manufacturing companies, what just didn't work. And right. so the idea of could you build simulation almost like game engines and look at your entire supply chain mm. from all sides, see what the status is, because visibility has been the, pro I mean, to this day is the big right. problem. Right. And I think COVID actually shows how miserable we still are at this yeah. problem, because we have no visibility. I mean, we have problems producing N95 masks because of, yes. we don't understand the supply chains uh, Absolutely. enough. And that's not a high tech product. It's a couple of layers of materials <laughs> that you push together. Um, but with, you know, with electronics product, where you have a bill of material of 100,000 components, That's this right. problem is huge. And when you have changes of the life cycle, I mean, there, there might be, you know, some electronic component on the board that is end of life. You're planning a run of 10 million, uh, 10 million uh, component, uh, 10 million products. And this, Thing doesn't won't be available in six months yeah, yeah. you better find that out now because that's <laughs> going to be a real problem because it might not just change 
you know, like on the circuit board where you change that product, it might require rebuilding the entire circuit board because now you can do it differently. Yeah. Um, so this yeah. side of, uh, so I, I completely um, uh, loved, the, loved the vision that Rob Roden, Roden had and joined as COO for the company um, and met my future co-founder for supply frame there, which um, when, when it was for external and I don't want to go into too much detail because I don't think there are um, should be public. <laughs> okay, no, <laughs> completely point, understood. Yeah. When eConnection uh, shut down, we sort of um, built uh, supply frame that marketplace uh -huh. out of the out of the ideas and and sort of the IP and the people that we had, um, which launched. Yeah, which was yeah. still one of my proudest moments. That company. That's great. Congrats on uh, supply frame. Wonderful. Um, You've been involved since that time in a handful of other um, experiences, both at a C-suite level and also as advisor. Um, just looking at the time, I'm going to pick and choose a little bit because I wanted to kind of build up to uh, to what you're working on now. And so, um, you know, the uh, the data analytics for molecular medicine sounds like an amazing company. Um, but I'm very curious about Videro, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, and the immersive messaging. Uh, experience that you got involved with there, if you'd like to share that with us. Yes, so this was uh, founded by a friend from my hometown in Germany, oh, wow. um, okay. who I've known since high school. We were, we used to, you know, hang out as, as, as high school kids. Well, he was, he was, he was a little bit older, so he was actually working at the CD store, uh, <laughs> hi-fi and CD store, but we were like audiophiles. So we were completely, mm. I think you remember from our whiskey night, we, we right. talked about some, <laughs> some audio <laughs> stuff then too. Exactly. Um, and he got involved um, right in, so we, we didn't like the town where we grew up, 45,000 people, I mean, not, not a place on the map. However, there was a um, jazz drummer which who was unbelievable in drum as a drummer, but not successful commercially. And then decided he becomes a rock musician, a okay. pop rock musician, and he took off Meteoric as one of the biggest wow. stars in Germany. Um, Udo Lindenberg. He's from that okay. town, and based on his life success, the town of Drona. He no longer lives there or like has any sort of ties. But, you know, Dronau, the, the little town in Germany, had really not much else to advertise. So they decided, <laughs> Put it on the map. we will build him a museum. Wow. <laughs> we okay. built the German Rock and Pop Museum. So, you know, they, they, they find out, you know, there was a lot of, um, Dronau was a, was a town with textile manufacturing. It was like the the mecca of textile manufacturing until the 70s when Asia took over and everything sure. you know, turned into dust. And right. some of these old buildings became um, spaces for museums and, uh, and, yes, and, and startups. Right. Um, so when they tried to build this museum with super complicated interactive um, you know, audio video, um, and they did it all with media technology at, uh, available at the time and just the, the price and the budget. And my friend um, at the time walked in and thought, um, wait, um, there's an easier way. We can do this all with computers. Because he took over when, after CA and um, CA pulled out of Krona, he took over my old office. And we uh -huh. were the first internet provider in the entire area. So, okay. um, you know, some of the ideas and some of the people that were involved with the case, the case machine <laughs> became people that, you know, and that was media integration. And Fantastic. he knew this is solvable. So he built Videro um, out of that and it became uh, quite a, you know, after the Rock and Pop Museum was done successfully, they did the Mercedes Museum in Stuttgart, they did the Porsche Museum, uh, you know, brilliant. really marquee wow. museums. Now that infrastructure powers um, all of the uh, Disney stores worldwide. So when you walk into um, a Disney store, retail store, if you could walk into a Disney <laughs> retail store <laughs> right. during COVID, prior to COVID, um, all of that technology is, you know, what, what 
what we had, uh, what he had built. And then he asked me just when like the contacts with Apple and Disney started, you're in the US, can you help me with this is this is getting bigger. And we decided to do this together and um, setting this up until such point where we decided to sell the US rights to um, to a channel partner here because at the time, um, that seemed like the right thing to do. And right, right. Depending on when you publish your podcast, um, it might be the end of some legal battle. Then we could possibly oh. talk about what actually what more. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you always have a good story. That, those transition points, Kai, I'm always coming up with good stories. So, uh, yeah. So life just... is like that. Life yeah, is it's very, big narrative, very right? true. Very true. And you have these great lessons that have, have come out of it. Um, tell us about soulmates.ai. Oh, yes. So, so this is, this is, you know, you can probably see from some of my um, some of the, the background up to that point that um, large data sets and deriving something out of large data sets, you know, goes back to you know the supply chain management side goes back to you know if we just knew more, <laughs> if we had this information at our fingertips, um, we could do so much more, and with uh, with with soulmates and the previous work. So this was. A, continua a continuation of work that um, started at Full Bottle. Um, right. You know, this was the rise of social networks. So all of a sudden you have these massive uh, amount of communications going on because they're really less social networks than they are a media platform, right? They're a, a, they're a medium for communication. And we have all of this uh, amount of traffic and there is, there has not been, not just on in the technology side, but there has not been a construct in in society at that scale, uh, scale up to this point. Right. We have nothing. We have we have no nations that are that big. We don't have civilization constructs, and it was becoming clear when you know the the whole um, uh, movement, the maker movement, or the influencer movement came up that we really don't understand how things function on that network specifically and this is what this has been my pet peeve since and you know it's like sort of the line that draws through um, everything on the science side and the engineering side I've done since is how do you understand influence propagation how do you understand how something jumps from one point to the next because we know if we go back to first principles um, the best way and this this tags into how we do advertising, right? The best way um, that somebody tells you something positive about something that you might like is when you know that person and you revere that person right. as an expert in that field. So in tribal times, again, back to first principles, when somebody walked over that you knew exactly who that was with like two sticks attached to your campfire from the, from the neighboring camp and says, I put these two sticks together and now I can do this. That was authentic messaging, right? At least right. you would try it out and see, oh yeah, maybe that works. Ha, mm -hmm. influence has moved, like has propagated and then you might go to the next village. How does that work on social media? And we started to analyze um, social media data at scale. So we were looking at um, how people are connected because originally, if you just build a graph, you know everything. Of course, we know nothing. Once we <laughs> build the graph, we just know what the potential vectors of transmissions could be. And that's sort of the time when I started uh, working with a friend who I met at, um, at uh, 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 Collaborix um, in Palo Alto, the, the um, uh, drug development um, right. company. She's an epidemiologist and right. transmission. That's an epidemiology, epidemiological term. We need to understand that. Can you help us? Um, and it's been extremely informative. Of course, there's one little problem that, that became apparent. Epidemiologist is a discipline of tiny, tiny data sets. You look mm. for literally that one handle <laughs> on that door <laughs> that caused the original transmissions to go like right. 5x. Um, and now we're talking about, oh yeah, so we have 150 million data points, have at it. And right. she said, no. 
<laughs> that doesn't work with my math. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> we need to find some level of abstraction. And we, we, we learned by doing the analysis that just following how people are connected is actually not, does not help you all that much because, you know, your followers, when you talk about scotch and when you talk about your podcast, are probably resonating differently. So context exactly. matters. So That's we, right. okay, yeah. we need a knowledge graph. Um, uh, uh, we need an AI to identify these sort of the entity extractions, understand what these conversations are about. So we built uh, an uh, AI to understand how these, uh, you know, how we can set context. And of course, then you go into scenarios. Okay, these people talk about 9-11. This tweet is 911. Hmm. Okay, is it a car? Is it a yes, traumatic right. event in history? Um, right, is it right, a, is it a call to the emergency? Service? Emergency, yeah. Um, so this knowledge uh, knowledge graph has to be very intelligent. It has to know like a nine eleven is a Porsche. Is it? But also in another context, you have to have disambiguation. Anyway, that kept us quite busy. And then we ran the numbers again, and we still like couldn't figure out. There was not like, oh yeah, the eigenvector, and we can clearly see that you know network centrality, and that's how it worked. Right. We and that's you know, sort of the work we we um, we started. Um, we, we were bringing to soulmates, and that one day, the, my first day there with the meeting is when I met Galen, my my partner. I was now. just going to ask, yeah. Um, and Galen looks at me and says, "Yeah, that's all really interesting work, but don't you think?" It would be also interesting or important to know who the people are. It's like, what do you mean? <laughs> who are the people? They're people. You know, it's like, no, yes. the psychology of those yeah, people. Yeah, the interpsychometrics. Don't, don't you think that matters? And, you know, up to that point, I thought like psychology sort of, yeah, yes, I, I've been to a therapist. I, I've, you know, I, I, I've had interaction with psychiatrists and, and uh, uh, psychologists, but I thought it was sort of, you know, from my background, you know, quantum physics and general right. relativity, that's science. <laughs> <laughs> Personality is like, oh, so psychology is like, is that really? And right. of course I was dead wrong. And yeah. Galen, like that, that just like those two, started in intense collaboration with Galen that just blew my mind because not Fantastic. only is it a real science, it is now um, quantitatively analyzable. And that right. it directly led into, you know, starting a company with him, which is SciML, which is, you know, doing computational psychology and neuroscience and trying to do this at scale and trying to really concentrate on the, on the issues. Um, yes, we're still working on the influence problem, um, which now has signal because we were looking at you know, that additional dimension, right. learning the psychology of individuals and using the hexaco, which is sort of the now the consensus model. Um, in the 80s, we had the, uh, the big five, the ocean model. Now, since 2000, 2001, we have hexaco, which adds just one more dimension, which is honesty, humility. But you can actually use factor analysis and you can actually get numerical quantitative um, data on individuals, and we, we all can be defined uh, to an extent um, by our by our personality footprint, by our makeup, and it's yep. constant, and it works ac across cultures, works across um, uh, across languages. It's a it's a real measurable um, def definition, um, and that got us. Of course, then you open that box and say, okay. That's how you are as a human being, being fairly stable across your life. But of course, your days are not like that. You go True. up and down, so That's and right. emotion yeah. and the neuroscience yeah. of emotion. Now, sort of the, the, the groundbreaking research we're doing right now is, is there a causal link between your personality type and your emotional journey? Meaning those little, you know, how you recover in, a, in for example, with, with fear or how you, you ramp up with uh, with anger or surprise or happiness is that is that informed is there a causal link is your journey different mm -hmm. based on your yes. psychometric makeup um and that's really fascinating <laughs> yeah yeah well or how are you uh, able to cope with the pandemic 
So this is this this is no no uh, like this is an interesting that was part of a problem that is curious to look at right which you know on the company basis we were really lucky because we were a remote business to start with um, yeah. we you know geographically spread out but we've been able to and we we started to um to to set up a workshop to help teams based on what you know, what you can actually learn and what what you can um, glean from understanding your personality makeup mm. in your team yes, while nice. they're working remote, because it's different when you're all in the same, you know, open and you can walk Absolutely. by each other. You can read the thing that like, my God, that desk looks too clean. That desk never looks that clean. I should really talk to my colleague because something's up. Uh, yeah. We can't do that, right? This doesn't right. work over Zoom. It doesn't work over Slack. Um, but when you when you analyze and you you have awareness for your own psycho, uh, psychometric makeup for your own personality, and understand where people are coming from, it opens the the door to much much more insightful collaboration. Mm -hmm. um, so this has been incredibly uh, powerful for us and our our clients during this time to work on on those problems. It's just been great. Um, yeah. really and we we're we're able to use our, we stood up two large AI systems. One is to, to clean uh, your personality type um, from, from words, from language, through natural language processing. And we can mm. identify um, five, five key emotions and uh, sentiment from, uh, from speech and from text as well. Wow. So wow, we've been able fantastic. to utilize these tools to, um, you know, to help companies to help build instruments that really have a measurable impact for them right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, how much data is required to get to um, those five characteristics? As in, how many uh, words or how much? Uh, how many minutes of talking? Emotion is actually simple. I mean, a single mm. tweet, um, unless it's two sparse. I mean, two words obviously don't give you a whole lot of signal. Right. Although, depending <laughs> on the words, you might need, you might get what you need. <laughs> um, so, emotion is fairly simple. Uh, our mm. models work with very, very small uh, data sets. For us to get a, a good reading um, for your for hexaco uh, psychometrics. 500 words is sort of the, the, the target okay. minimum. All right. um, you can probably push it depending on how eloquent somebody is down to 250 words. But yeah, it, it takes a lot more to get yeah. scientifically yeah, relevant right. measurement. Right, right. You know, when you work with scientists, it also stops you from product marketing things that, you know, just look right. right. <laughs> you actually make sure that they are right. Right. Well said. Yeah. Um, Kai, who would be an ideal collaboration partner for you and, and SciML? Um, that could be in two areas. Um, people with large data sets. Um, that's obviously, you know, machine learning has done so much positive for us. It has, it's bringing up some limitations and some problems too, because, uh, you know, the models require, or the models work because there are what is actually called hidden layers. And guess what? These layers are hidden. So you can't really introspect these models. You don't really know what they do. So our approach to that has been calibrated with, you know, first order logic, things that you can actually uh, factually express, for example, in, in an ontology using you know, a web ontology language. It's, it's a beautiful construct to actually embed machine readable knowledge. Um, so bringing those two together so we can calibrate models that are in the machine learning world um, so you can fight bias, you can fight, um, mm -hmm. you know, and I think the biggest, the most important thing is find out where those borders are. Because when you train up machine learn, learning models, um, they work based on the data set that you trained them with. Um, when you throw later data at them that they weren't trained with, the cliff might be really, really abrupt. Yeah, understood. So that you, yeah. move, you move outside of the scope and it doesn't just not work, it doesn't work at all. I mean, yeah. there's no, yeah. it, it might work negatively. Yes, um, right. So right. being able to define, so people with large data sets, 
all people that really um, uh, have problems to understand people even either on the individual basis or at scale. Those are sort of the, the optimal um, collaborations for us. Wonderful, that's fantastic. Kai, this has been such an extraordinary conversation. I appreciate all the experiences you've shared and um, you know, you've done it with a great deal of humor, um, which is uh, appreciated. Um, all these various learning experiences that you've had and uh, I would certainly encourage you to uh, bring it all together in a book. I think it would be a delightfully insightful read for memory, many members of our audience. <laughs> you know, it's, it's so funny because you learn so much. You hopefully you, you think eventually you run out of really big mistakes. <laughs> and then you think like one day, maybe you're in a position to bring all of what you learned to bear <laughs> in a good way. Um, it's, uh, it's definitely exciting. Yeah, <laughs> well, that, that is the hope. That's for yeah. Sure. yeah, that's right. Well, and, and if you can't bring it to bear, you're just collecting more data points, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, but you know, like that's the engineering and the science side. Um, it's a, <laughs> right. You don't want it to be just a selection of, oh my God, I learned a lot in there too. <laughs> right. <laughs> Bring it to bear in, you know, that's right. the, the, the couple of times where it, where it did work, when we brought products to market. Of course, this is, although, you know, at the end of the day, that's not really what you're most proud of across your, across your mm. life. What you're most proud of across your life, at least, um, and I know Galen shares this, uh, shares this as well. If you work with people um, and, you, and you bring them to places and they then exceed their own expectations of themselves, mm, so well that makes it all. When, when yeah. people ask, you know, money is there to, to have a level of comfort and choice so you can do the things that you're really passionate about. I think that's, that's right. to me, that's like where money comes in. But what do you really do it for? Those moments when you have yeah. those individuals that, that you've been working with and they have been just like been able to go places that they didn't think they could. Um, Amazing. That makes it all worthwhile. Yeah, for sure. Well, thankfully you've had a lot of those experiences. Some, which just thank God. I'm blessed <laughs> and very, very fortunate. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, and hopefully all the future endeavors will uh, lead to that as well. And so um, I thank you so much, Kai. Yeah, fingers crossed again. Thank you, Steve. <laughs> thank you. This was very delightful. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Bye. I really do appreciate your generosity of your time.